This is the Unnamed Financial Podcast, a crash course in financial literacy. If you feel left out of the markets, join me, Matt Gregory, and stock market expert Peter Raschuti from Tulane University as we navigate the basics of Wall Street. We are so ripe for Ponzi schemes and, and everything like it right now. I mean, you look at the first basic reason is that interest rates, returns on secure investments, the things that normal people invest in, like a money market fund or CD, are so low that it has people looking somewhere else. On this week's episode, what is a Ponzi scheme? And this week on Wall Street, why are some of the big names in finance suddenly optimistic about the economy? Here's a hint, vaccines aren't the only shot in the arm the country's given out. And we're gonna get started now with Peter Raschuti, our stock market expert. And rather than talk about the weather or baseball, I just wanna talk about and take a moment to recognize that you said last week, you know what we should do, Matt? Ponzi schemes. And I was like, you know, Ponzi schemes sound great, something to be interested in, everyone knows about them. And then within the week, Bernie Madoff, the most infamous Ponzi scheme generator, dies. I, and I know, let's face it, you and I are suspects at this point. Uh, they, it is. <laughs> It can only get so lucky in terms of a story like this. Plus, I always think that, you know, whoever comes up with names, whether it's God or whatever, I mean, this is just so great. I mean, because, like, you know, Madoff, Madoff with the money, that is just so great. I mean, it's uh, it was perfect. What, what do they call that? It's like um, predestined for something? or Yeah, uh, that's yeah. what it was. Yeah, the uh, it <laughs> we have a company we follow with the students, uh, uh, a chicken processing company in the... Um, um, and the uh, CEO is named Cockrell, which is, I think, is actually Latin for rooster. So things are really uh, working out. By the way, with Madoff, and as we go into these things, um, you know, the Madoff deal, most of the time we talk about these illegal scams and all this stuff, it's usually innocent people that kind of fall for it as such. But the Madoff thing was so different because it was institutional investors mm -hmm. and very wealthy people. Well, you know, what Wall Street would call sophisticated investors. So... It was very different from all the rest, but uh, so rest so then, in peace, Bernie. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it was it was a wild thing to see happen after we decided to do this. So I guess the most basic way before we even get to Bernie is what is a Ponzi scheme? Ah, uh, they uh, first of all, it's named after a guy named Charles Ponzi, who was an Italian American from Boston financier, mm -hmm. which is well, that's where the similarities end. That's really the most important part of this story, and. Uh, <laughs> And I don't, yeah. now let's go on to Sacco and Vanzetti, another two Italian yeah. guys from Boston. So, um, and nobody likes Columbus anymore, understandably. Absolutely. Lots of issues that have come through, but it's just, we're not doing well with Italian Americans. No, we're, we're just having a tough outing, but, uh, you know, we still, everything we make is beautiful. It's, it's going to work out. It's, uh, it's like, like the Maserati, all those cars, you know, the pretty and most beautiful cars in the world, but they, they don't run a lot of them, you know, like a Fiat, yeah, you know, it's, so it's, uh, because we're interested in beauty, not so much mechanics. So it's, mm -hmm. uh, Oh my gosh. But yeah, no. So uh, that was the gentleman. And he was in uh, 1919. He did this. He wasn't the first person to come up with a scam like this. And what he did is a little bit complicated, but what basically was what we would call arbitrage, which is a, an okay term. And he was, he was telling people that he could basically buy stamps uh, in foreign countries and bring them to the US and they'd be worth more. So it really is stamps, kind of hard to believe. But what makes it a Ponzi scheme is the idea that there were several layers of it. The, uh, the idea that he could get you involved in this amazing uh, money-making uh, idea and that you should be some of the first investors in. 
And then after the first level investors got involved, um, a second level and a third level would come in. And so the key to a Ponzi scheme is that it has to keep generating new investors. And the new investors end up, the newest investors pay off the investors, uh, that money's being used to pay off the earlier investors. And so it goes on and on and on until the music stops and it could stop for a number of reasons. But the bottom line is that uh, if you can't recruit new people, it's not gonna work. And this is kind of what's happened. So you know, the term, I guess one term you might hear is uh, this is a situation where you gotta rob Peter to pay Paul. You know, uh, Peter would be at the bottom one, I'm sorry about this, but, uh, and he would have to, or rob, rob Peter to pay Matt. That might be another, another way to, to do it. But this is, and this has been going on forever and ever and ever. And I really think, uh, you know, I hadn't thought about it till I got ready for this uh, show this week, but I really think we are so ripe for Ponzi schemes and, and everything like it right now. I mean, you look at the first basic reason is that interest rates, returns on secure investments, the things that normal people invest in, like a money market fund or CD are so low that it has people looking somewhere else. And you know the, whether, it's an, uh, whether it's some scheme involving uh, Bitcoin or some crazy IPOs or these, uh, all these other new plans, people are really open to it because they really have nowhere else to go. Yeah, I was gonna ask you with, um, so that Ponzi himself had a stamp scheme, it sounds yeah. like. But when it comes to, to, uh, talk to you about it. I've met three other people and I think we can. <laughs> I got to talk to you about a stamp scheme. Listen, and they're the, the what are they, the, the forever stamps? Oh, yeah, that's we'll right. Just, that we'll would be the. And nobody knows enough history to go, Jesus, stamp scheme. Wait a minute, I heard of this before, you know? Yeah, it, that's why history is great because it can repeat itself because people forget. <laughs> um, I was going to say, though, with, with the Ponzi scheme in the, on the investment level, so how does it work in terms of, um, you know, like when you were, and we'll get to Madoff in a second, but you're, you're promising these big returns, like you said. So <clears throat> when it comes to a Ponzi scheme that an investment, uh, a financier of some sort is promising, how do they, how do they kind of make that work? Well, uh, and first of all, there are a lot of signs that, that something's wrong. First of all, they're offering you returns that just aren't available. Uh, in, a, in a traditional sense, like right now, you've always got to remember that this, the stock market, the S&P 500, on average for the last 150 years has produced a rate of return of 10% annually. So you got to always, that's got to be, and the 10-year U.S. Treasury note, which is guaranteed by the government, is selling at 1.75%. So if somebody's telling you that they can offer you 25%, you have to ask where. And uh, for some reason, people just gravitate to these outsized returns, thinking that they're onto something. And, uh, and of course, the good thing about it is they wanna get onto it soon and then go to a party and tell their friends what they've found. And this is kind of the way it, the way it works. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, so these outrageous returns are one, uh, sometimes you hear about the difference between, a, um, well, let's use three terms, a Ponzi scheme, uh, a pyramid scheme, that would kind of be the same kind of thing. And the other would be multi-level marketing. Now, all, not all multi-level marketing is, uh, and you hear that through Amway and all, all that, mm -hmm. uh, is, is any kind of scheme or pyramid scheme. But you have to look out and see, how can I identify something that is a scheme? And, and the big thing is that, first of all, they don't let you just become a customer and check out the product and just you know do that for a while, which would be very important. They don't, they don't give you the time to say, 
hmm, can I sell this stuff? Does it, is it, is it gonna work on that end? And the, the other part, and this is really the biggest part, is that your payoff, that how you make money is not really as much a function of how much you sell, but how many recruits you bring in. And that's mm. the bells and whistles that goes. And I'll tell you, very, very sad stories. You know, a lot of people end up with a garage full of cheese straighteners or whatever the, um, I don't know if there's a real need for that product, made that up just now, but we, uh, they, and, and, uh, and that's how it, how it works. So uh, um, and I, I, it's really sad. It was right around the turn of the Great Recession when I graduated college, um, which dates me. And, right. and that's fine. Uh, and I remember- Somebody's got a date map. So I, otherwise, I'm just dating myself. Right. And that's how you bring it back around. So, so I remember being at a Borders and I didn't have a job because who had jobs? It was like 12% unemployment. And a guy came up to me and I thought like, oh, this is the dream. He was like, hey, I was reading a magazine, sports magazine. And he said- you looking for a job? And I was like, yeah. And at this point at 22 or 21, whatever I was, I, it didn't occur to me that desperation smells on people and they are the first people you try to grab for your Cutco knife scheme, your uh-huh. like vacuum cleaner. And I remember when he drew me up, you know, how things were going to go. He was going to give me a product to sell to two other people. He moved himself, not at the top, but off to the side. So instead of um, a pyramid scheme, it was a trapezoid scheme. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where a college education that, helped you. Yes, because I I'm saw. Not I, falling, I'm not falling for a rhombus scheme. No way, but this trapezoid. No, no rhombus schemes. So I guess um, the, the best way to kind of uh, look at it is with Madoff, like you were saying, what were kind of the telltale signs that people weren't recognizing that were happening? Uh, the two big ones. The first was the returns were outsized, they were beyond what the stock market should be delivering. Uh, and the second one is that the returns were perfectly consistent. Like if you were in there and you were some of the early money, you got, I don't remember, can't remember what the number was, but you got 15% every single year. And of course, one of the things about being an investor is you know it runs all over the place. Some years you're down 6%, the next year up 20%. So it didn't make any sense that, but because the return was higher than it should have been, and, uh, and it seemed to be going well, people just st- stuck with it. And uh, these were big, big, wealthy, sophisticated investors. It just seems, you know, you look back and you, you, you wonder how they miss, how people miss these signs. Uh, and generally though, Matt, I remember that I had a neighbor across the street, this must've been 30 years ago, and she knew what I did. And she came, she used to come up to me and go, I don't know how you can invest in stocks. That is the scariest, risky thing that's ever been about. I hear you on TV, but I don't, well, she, I moved away, not because of that, you know, but it's <laughs> if, if they're anti-stock, I'm leaving. There's a, no, and, but I, 30, I was, and years later after I moved, I found out she was, had lost all her money in a Ponzi scheme dealing with travel. And so here's this person, and this is true across the board. You tell them about investing in a, blue chip company and it's like i don't know that's pretty risky and you give them a decent return but you offer them a very high return for something they don't understand and they go for it and that would be another good point matt is these schemes are always complicated and now they're more complicated than ever Uh, when i think of complicated matt i always think of enron and enron when they were rocking and rolling analysts like me would go to would go to these uh, presentations or uh, conference calls. And I always remember if an analyst had the courage to say, I don't get it, they would berate them. 
instead of saying, let me help you, they'd go, well, you're obviously stupid and I don't know where you got your schooling. And that's, and it, that should have been wow. a sign, right? It was just incredible. It was, um, you know, these conference calls are so funny, Matt. I'd say about three years ago, before Tesla really got rolling, they, every company has a conference call for investors, open to everybody. Uh, once they announce their earnings every quarter. And so Elon Musk was, <laughs> was pontificating and really just going off the, uh, off, off the subject or whatever. And one of the analysts uh, called in and he said, uh, he goes, Mr. Musk, he goes, uh, this is a conference call. It's not a TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> I was on that call. I just cracked up. But, uh, <sighs> but uh, yeah, and you know, there's a, Peter Lynch is like one of my favorite investors. He's up there with Warren Buffett. He was the money manager at the Fidelity Magellan Fund that did so well for like two decades. And uh, right, I love right, right. Yeah, and he said that you should never invest in anything you couldn't explain with a crayon and a napkin. And uh, these are good examples. I, I, I couldn't have done Charles Ponzi's thing like that. And uh, I was going to say that one of the things that you've said uh, time and again, sort of about stocks too. So I think there's like two rules that even if this is about Ponzi scheme, somebody could take this away. There's one rule, which is if you can't explain it, on a napkin, it's probably not a great investment idea for you. And number two is if you're going to invest in a stock, make sure you understand what the company does and how they play out into the ecosystem of economics because otherwise you're investing in speculation purely at that point. Absolutely. That's just the greater fool theory that you've got this concept or whatever nobody understands, but you think you could sell it to the next guy for more money. And that's, um, and that's really crazy. Uh, another interesting thing about Ponzi schemes and and uh, all that kind of thing now is that the internet has made it both easier to pull those off and more difficult to pull those off. It's easier because you can get to a giant market, you can slice and dice who you're gonna uh, focus on. Uh, you can, it's very easy once you hook somebody to have them start hooking other people, you know, because they have their own contact list and all of that. Um, but it's, uh, it's more difficult to pull it off because if the person is thinking about it, they can call the Better Business Bureau. They can go on the internet, see if there's been any articles written about this. They can call to see if there's any certification, investment certification. They can look and really see if there's any track record. So if people do their work, they're better suited to avoid these problems than they ever have. With the Madoff thing, was it just not detectable because it started in the 80s? I mean, he ran this Ponzi scheme for decades. Yes, a couple of decades, amazing. And of course, he had the other, the other thing he had was um, his great credentials. I know this sounds crazy, but we're always thinking of some guy pulling off a scheme in his, the basement of his mom's house or something like that. This guy had been the chairman of NASDAQ. Oh, I mean, right. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, and he was playing on that. And I, I just, I mean, I never did it. I wouldn't have done it. But if you told me the guy was the, had the, been the chairman of NASDAQ, I would have listened to the story. Yeah. And so he'd been pulling the wool over people's eyes for, for so many years. And of course, he got a 150 year sentence. And, um, you know, if you're 70 years old, 150, you know, I, I, I don't think we have to bring in an actuary. No, but no uh, don't right, need an actuary for that. <laughs> but, and, uh, and he always wanted to get out early for illness and such, but I don't know how it all, it all ended. Remember, his wife was given like two and a half million dollars and lives, lives in Connecticut or something like that. But it, um, it soured everything. And yeah. by the way, a lot of those investors got a lot of their money back. I just read about that today and in looking into it. Um, there's something you brought up a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago. 
you brought up a certain baseball player, Bobby Bonilla. And if you pay attention, I was reading a little bit today, and I didn't even realize this. One of the things that the Mets, the Wilpons, the owners of the New York Mets, uh, they had a big contract with Bobby Bonilla, and they felt like if they deferred that contract at 8% interest, if they did that, and this is just one of the articles I was reading, if they deferred it at 8% interest, they felt like they could keep the money instead of giving it to him and make more because they were getting 15 to 20% with Bernie Madoff. So in many ways... Um, we have this great like story of contracts about Bobby Bonilla because of Bernie Madoff. That, and that's the, that's the best part about the Bernie Madoff thing. I think there were very good, few good parts, but the fact that it helps us explain the Bonnie, Bobby Bonilla contract better. It, it, it's, it, it, and because of that, now Bobby Bonilla gets a million dollars until 2050 because that was the deferred agreement so the Wilpons could reinvest. And Bernie Madoff did eventually, I, su- I suppose, make someone some money legitimately. Right. And that, you know, you could picture if you really thought you were going to get 20% on your money and you could defer the contract by 8%, um, you'd have to be crazy right. not, not to do it. You know, it's uh, and another new guy that owns the Mets is a professional investor. So, uh, mm-hmm. so I don't think he should fall for any of this. I think Hopefully he's, not. He's good with it. Yeah. Let me ask you this, um, and maybe you don't know it offhand, but what was it that ultimately unraveled Madoff? Was it the uh, the 2008 stock crash, or that's that's what it was when the when the stock market kind of crashed, and um, uh, of course it was directly tied to you graduating from college. I think we all know that. <laughs> they, uh, it was uh, <laughs> put two and two together, but um, yeah, people wanted withdrawals. They wanted their money out, and of course it wasn't there. And, um, and that's, that's the thing. And that's kind of what, same thing with a Ponzi scheme or a, a bad multi-level marketing group is that you get, if people want, if the music stops, it's mm-hmm. all over. And, uh, and that's how long it can go. I, you know, I've been to, well, it's funny that you're approached at Borders. That's actually very fine. But, what an but, old you know, sentence that is, by the way. It's such an antiquated <laughs> sentence. I was approached at Borders by someone who had a flip phone about a multi-level marketing Rhombus scheme. <laughs> I, that is a perfect title to your new book. And, uh, but I think we've all been. <laughs> we've all been that desperate, I think. <laughs> the desperate reader. This, um, yeah, it, it, you know, a lot of people I have, for instance, uh, you know, people you get invited to a party or a get together and you don't realize that they've locked the doors and then they're going to pitch you on a very, and the people that usually fall for them are kind of the same people, though. Um, that's why the Madoff thing was so weird, because it's usually people with very little financial background, uh, and they love the idea of these outsized returns. And uh, it's, just, it's just incredible. You don't have to, it's, they never think, and this is really the thing to think, is, okay, this guy's offering me 20%. How's he getting 20%? Like if the 10-year treasury is at 1.75, what in God's name is he investing in mm-hmm. that he can afford to give me this? And, uh, um, and it's, just a real, it's just a real issue. And I'm just so afraid in this market that we're going to get more and more and more of it. And there's, you know, there's obviously, there's the Better Business Bureau, there's the Securities Exchange Commission. There's a lot of uh, people that could help you out here. But a lot of times these people have taken the money and gone by the time you figure out it's, it's a scam. Yeah, and uh, we'll have to see. But it, I, that neighbor is a good example, though. People that they have a, a strange uh, um, outlook on risk. They they don't see um, they don't see high return. 
parents will blind them to risk. And I don't know what that is. I, like, for instance, right now, I think risk is. I don't think we're looking at risk right now at either. Like, let's take a look. Most people are, have, um, you, they should be concerned about rising interest rates. That's a real risk to financial mm-hmm. assets. And they, people don't, nobody's worried about it. But they do worry about being killed by a terrorist, being eaten by sharks. It's really weird. And the odds are much better than interest rates go up. Yeah. I don't know. Is there any, would you have any kind of like a psychiatrist living in your apartment building that you could bring on now? I'm sure I do. I have a lot of people who probably need a psychiatrist (laughs) based on how often I get knocks on the door about really inane things like somebody else's dog. I don't have a dog. Stop asking me about the droppings. Um, No, I, I think that there's, when I think about um, most of the people that I've talked to, uh, in just my young life or my experience of people saying they're investing in things, um, there is a certain kind of person who feels that you have to spend money to make money, which I get and makes sense in some context. But it's how much money are you willing, willing to spend and how much, how much research did you do before you jumped is sort of like where I come into. I, I had a roommate one time who told me I should throw all of my money into Alibaba which is a, the a Chinese, um, Chinese uh, yeah, uh, Amazon. And he put like, I want to say, you know, and he had spent walking around money. I didn't. He put like $1,000 in it, and it dropped for the first like two months, and he got right back out because he was expecting this big risk yeah. to pay off. Um, I'm an idiot, and I put a lot of money into a processing company, AMD. Not a whole lot, but just a, a fair amount. And then after, you know, two months, it went down to less than half of what I was. So I think it went from 13 down to $7 a share. I had no choice but to stick with it because I didn't have walking around money. Right. And eventually and it went back up, but you I have to be patient. It's a happy story once Matt left. Yeah, once. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think what you're talking about is there's just a certain type of person and you know them when you see them and you can't like put a finger on it. I'm sure a psychiatrist, psychologist could, but that would say to um, Bernie Madoff, and, it, and to be fair, the former NASDAQ uh, chairman, was it? Chairman, was right. it? Yeah. Promising you big returns. He, you think he's got a system, and it turns out his system, I guess, was just taking money from some people, investing a little bit, but then taking that money and paying somebody else out with it. Right. And it's, uh, you know, it's, yeah, I will tell you that one of the big problems for investors, Matt, is that they go to a financial advisor, and one of the first things you do is they give you kind of a, an exam on what your risk tolerance is. And, and what rate of return you might be expecting. Well, that risk tolerance piece, everybody lies. I mean, they have this sheet and it's, it's, you fill it out and it's like, I think I could take on some risk or whatever. And the stock drops like 1% and they're in the office screaming. And it's like, you know, sell, sell. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, you know, nobody's telling the truth. And, and it's, and in that sense, they're not really lying. They just don't know what their emotions are gonna be. And the truth of the matter is, Fear is stronger than greed. And that's what all these uh, psychiatrists that I see each week um, talk to me about. But it, it is um, it's true. I, it's something about fear that uh, just it, it, it outweighs everything. So I don't know where, where the, and this has been going on forever. I don't see how it's not going to go on forever. All I can think of is with technology and new products and new ways to uh, change things and, and uh, manipulate things and pervert investments, I don't see why this is not gonna be bigger than it's ever been. Um, you know, it's really tough to tell somebody, well, I can get you 2% in a 
um, you know, in a treasury note, you know, it's like, well, you know, stop the, uh, stop the presses. That's great. And nobody, nobody's interested. And of course, at, you know, at parties, everybody in New Orleans knows what I do. And they'll tell me, you know, what, what are you following with the students? And I'll tell them and then, and they'll just walk away. You know, there's like, I want to hear about something that's going to quadruple tomorrow. Um, it's, they're just not interested in those kind of, uh, those kind of stocks. So, uh, and that's why people, people lose. I mean, and you know what else is, Matt, is very important. It's why people have such a, a bad feeling about the stock market is that they never went in as investors. They always went in as speculators. And you'll hear people say, I'd never be involved in the stock market. I lost my shirt on that one. You tell them, what was it? And it's like, oh, you're, you're clearly going to be shirtless. There was no, um, <laughs> not, <laughs> nobody, nobody has a, re nobody says things like, well, you know, I bought five stocks. They were all of, uh, um, they were good quality companies with dividends and, uh, um, and they were well run and had a good balance sheet and we went broke. No, you didn't. Um, no, I, no one says, obviously no one says I bought a bunch of index funds and mutual funds and you know, would you know? Right. And now I'm living right. in the overpass. No, nobody says that. And another good little trick, by the way, Matt, is that you're talking about this one, things that don't go to zero is I like to look and see what the insiders are doing with their stock. Now, mm -hmm. we insider trading is a whole different thing. Insider trading is when you're trading on information you shouldn't have. And, you know, that way, before you know it, you're in a federal penitentiary in Connecticut going, give me the ball, give me the ball. So it's, uh, <laughs> so, but that's not what we're talking about here. That'll be a different show. But what are insiders doing with it? Are they buying the stock? And so these are people who are CEO, CFO, COO, the C-suite, plus anybody that's got a big chunk of the stock. Uh, sometimes people say anybody who could pick up the phone and the CEO would answer you. That would kind of be an, be an insider. And um, what are they doing? Are they buying or selling the stock? And if they're mm -hmm. selling the stock in that company, well, that's not a terrible thing because maybe their kid's going to college and they need it for tuition or they're buying a boat or something like that. Or, um, but when they're buying the stock, well, that's a pretty positive indicator because they could do anything with this money in the world. They could buy other stocks. They could buy real estate. They think the best thing in the world, knowing what I know, is to buy this stock today. And it's a hmm. great indicator. And it's all public, by the way. Once you're an insider and you buy or sell a stock, within minutes, you have to tell the SEC and it's all public. You can just, um, you look on the company's website, you can look on other, there's a place called Open Insider uh, and you can find whatever anybody's buying, insiders are doing. So uh, wow. the information's out there. I guess that's one of the great things, Matt, is about when I, I'm a teacher in my class, is just to show them all the things that are just out there. Because if you're a public company or you're an insider, it's a, it's a fishbowl. And if you're an investor that kind of knows how to look for these things, it's, it's all out there. You know, if you're a private company, you don't have to tell anybody anything. Yeah. You know, it's not like you knock on the door and go, so how was the last quarter? Get out of here. You know, it's, uh, this, these, these are public companies. Outside of um, Bernie Madoff's demise this right. week. Yes, right. I was looking just briefly over the Dow, the S&P, our, our indexes that are maybe not the choice of the, you know, the choice ones, but uh, it seemed like there has been like some sort of strange, like bounce from yesterday to today. It was pretty astronomical in the Dow. I didn't see it as astronomical in the S&P. What did you see this week? Jeez, I, you know, they've turned the, turned the corner. They've bounced in their, 
they are really moving up. You hear people like Jeremy Siegel at Wharton saying there's another 30% to this bounce. You heard the uh, uh, chairman of Blackstone come out today and say this, this thing isn't over. One of the things is you've got everything going for you. You've got a major turnaround in the economy in the second half here. It's going to be phenomenal, uh, which is being pushed on by the stimulus. You've got, you've got the Federal Reserve saying we're not going to raise interest rates. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't draw a better plan for, for stocks uh, to move up. But the question is, like, where does, what happens when the stimulus runs out? What happens when people are back to normal? I don't really think this economy can grow at six, 7%. Um, it's, it, there's nothing, there's nothing that is gonna change the fact that this economy has been growing about two, two and a half percent since, you know, for the last 30 years. That's about all you can do. And if you wanted the economy to grow faster than that, and I know this is gonna cause people to, you know, a lot of arguments and letters and everything. You need more people. You really do. You need to allow immigrants. And one other thing, Matt, and I'm your single man, I'm just bringing this up, is that our, our rate of having babies is at a 35 year low. And I thought, I know Matt, this isn't the subject we usually discuss, but I thought <laughs> in my mind, my little, and I only, only took that intro to sociology class, but I thought we'd get a lot of babies because of COVID because there's nothing to do. Is, um, but, but it's different than a snow day or a snow week where people are like excited. What happens is the first month of the pandemic, people really like each other. And then yeah. by, you know, month four or five, it's like, I think I saw the divorce rate has gone up. Oh, yeah. That was, uh, if there's any publicly traded divorce lawyers, which they're not, um, <laughs> that would be a, be a good point. And I, I know what I found, it was, um, it was kind of binary. Uh, you either really loved your spouse more than you did before. And I'm not bragging, but that's kind of where I am. Um, mainly she was feeding me. Well, thank you. And she was feeding me and she knew how the remote worked. You know, it was very, very important to me, kind of things like that. And, uh, but on the other side, there were a lot of divorces and everything else, but, uh, but whatever it is, we're not having babies. The U.S. population is, is set to shrink if we don't get immigration going. If you want to know what that means, you don't have to look far. You just have to look at Japan. Japan, they're still great people, very educated, really smart, and their economy has done nothing but potentially even sink a little for the last 20 years because they don't allow people to move there. Which is interesting because when I, I've said this before that Japan has been in a recession for about 20, I thought I heard it was sometime in the 80s maybe it began, yeah. but you're, it's, an, it's a strange concept to get through people's heads, right? Because they feel like more people coming in, there's only a finite amount of jobs. But uh, there's been a, several articles I've read, and I'm not an economic expert, but the articles I read seem to speak to the fact that the more people, I think it was saying the case for a billion Americans. It was something like that was what someone had written. And there may even be a book on it. But it, you're right. It was a, the more people, the more jobs you have to create to feed them, to house them, to clothe them. Um, and we've sort of reached that point where, um, from your beginner biology class, where with the boomer generation moving up to being older, you don't have the curve you usually have, like a, a you know, a, a pyramid. You don't quite have the inverse pyramid, which is the death spiral for a, a country, but you have like this weird truncated diamond shape, which doesn't really allow for growth. And you're right, um, immigration, while it seems, it's so odd how some things look like one plus one should equal two, but in this case, one plus one don't equal the two you think that you're getting. Right. It's exactly true. And 
what makes this economy work? 70% of, of the US economy is, is uh, consumer driven. That's mm -hmm. the way it always been. That's how we work. In fact, I always laugh. Um, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you, Matt, but right after 9-11, President Bush came out. And of course, he always had a kind of a strange uh, working with the English language anyway. But, um, but, he, came, but he came out after 9-11 and he said, everybody needs to be an American. Everybody needs right now to go shopping. And of course, you know, people like, uh, we just got attacked. I don't know who's it. And I'm like, you know, I'm like under my desk going, yeah, I'll meet you at the food court, you know, and it's, uh, but he was right. I mean, I don't know how many Americans realized he was right. That's what gets the ball rolling here. And, well, uh, and it always has been. Stimulus checks in the past. I got one when I was in college or high school, and I remember my yeah, it was it must have been a high school. Maybe I didn't get what my parents did. I remember my uh, high school teacher saying, "Tell your parents to go out tomorrow and spend it. Just spend right. it. It'll kick things off." It was probably after the dot com burst or something like that. Yeah. Now was she? She also worked for the Chamber of Commerce as well. The, um, I think so. Uh, they. Uh, by the way, Matt, I, to sum everything up here, I think we have to ask the question that uh, that's going to be a little uncomfortable, but is Social Security? Ponzi scheme because it's just what we described. It mm -hmm. is just you need more and more people at the bottom, and it's just what you described. It's it's a it's a single instance of exactly what you were explaining. If you don't have enough people at the bottom to pay the people at the top, you know what happens. Now, unlike a bad multi-level marketing company, the U.S. has a um, what do they call it? printing press, and that has really been very helpful, I think. But um, so it won't ever collapse like that. But when you look at the math, when you look at the structure, that's what it is. And that's why wow. you need young people. You need babies. You need uh, immigrants. One of the things you hear is that um, if you ask an economist, they will tell you this. The single greatest variable in terms of an economy going forward, whether it's a city, a country, a state, whatever it is, is the population of working age people. Mm. Because you need to get them into the system to pay and that's the way insurance works. You know, even when you talked about Obamacare, um, which had been used in Massachusetts for you know decades, but that's the whole thing. It, one of them said, uh, I know some of the people are against it, said, why don't you just take out the mandatory part? It's like, I'm thinking like, if you're a math person, it's like, uh, that's the uh, reason it works. It's uh, we can't take that part out. <laughs> no, it's not. The <laughs> yeah, you're, and, uh, you're right. That was a big issue with it was you need it. They were like, why do they need the mandatory? I'm like, well, because it doesn't work if you don't have the mandatory. That's why you're seeing a death spiral for uh, some of the benefits. No, that's a good question. I'd like to ask that to somebody. Is Social Security a Ponzi scheme? And I don't mean that in a negative way, but it no, does right. mirror it. Just structurally. Structurally. So if you're at a party this weekend, I think bring it up. I think that's chicks dig a subject like that. I think so. In D.C., it's a good way to get a drink thrown in your face because they won't – they'll think that you're taking a negative approach on Social Security as opposed to a philosophical discussion on what they all are. Oh, and in D.C., you got one more variable. I work for Social Security. Oh, that you know, will happen too. Then they really right, get mad right. at you. How dare you? I had a four-day work week, and you're about to ruin it. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a pretty good wrap-up. I, I don't want your diagram. <laughs> I don't want your diagram. I think um, I think next week we were just talking about it a little off the air. Um, a good thing to look at would be, and I don't know, is there a term for it? Are they just called offerings? Yeah, um, basically, yeah. Let's call it offerings as a, which sounds like kind of a religious term. Which is I was going to say, I'm bringing the offering. Um, no, basically, uh, yeah, offerings. We'll look at IPOs, the the traditional method. We'll look at SPACs. We'll look at uh, 
blank check companies, shell companies, all the ways in which an entity can raise money and investors can participate in it. So that would you be know, a great topic. Just because I couldn't end without something mildly Catholic on it, that sounds a lot like indulgences. <laughs> the, the, oh, okay. Week after that, <laughs> we, we do indulgences. <laughs> Peter, thanks for doing this. And uh, we'll talk to you next week about offerings, not the kind you do on Sunday in Mass, but the kind of offerings that you do to get your company started. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you, Peter, and you at home listening again. Thanks so much.